Resolute Square. Our guest today on the enemies list is the great Jonathan Lemire. He is the hardest working man in media. You see him on NBC from the way too early show to morning Joe to damn near every other time slot during the day and night. I don't know when you sleep, Jonathan, but you are uh, also the White House bureau, bureau Chief for Politico and one of the most tied in knowledgeable people of what is happening in this crazy moment we're having in D.C. and America uh, that you will hope to meet. Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on the enemies list. I am really glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm going to jump right in and uh, get your take on uh, – and we're recording this, folks, on the 4th, so we're just out of Kevin Palooza. Uh, I wanted to get your take, Jonathan, <laughs> on on the, the level of chaos inside the House GOP uh, since Matt Gates led this coup against uh, Kevin McCarthy. It is a historic, extraordinary amount of chaos, <laughs> and you – said it correctly, that this is not chaos in the House of Representatives. This is chaos in the House GOP. And we should make sure we don't shorthand it any other way. This is about the Republican Party. Uh, and a Republican Party that has been refashioned in Donald Trump's image. And what has happened here, uh, after McCarthy won with such a narrow margin in uh, January, that he was his fate was tied to the whims of any one member. That member, unfortunately for him, became Matt Gates, And with McCarthy now out signaling he wouldn't run again, we now have a week or more. And some Republicans I talk to say that even though the speaker ballot is set for next Wednesday, the 11th, right. they don't think it will happen then. So with a government shutdown clock rapidly ticking, we don't have a speaker of the House. That is, to my mind, the, the big moment. Are they going to keep Patrick McHenry in that seat through a shutdown vote, which I, I can't imagine you're going to have Matt and and the rest of his cohort being any more cooperative with Patrick McHenry than they were with with Kevin McCarthy. Yeah, I don't see why they would change their mind. I mean, the only counter would be that Gates and McCarthy, it became very personal. There was actually real animosity, it seemed, between the two, the two men. It's unclear how Gates feels about McHenry. But no, to your larger point, I certainly, if I were McHenry or anyone else in Republican leadership, I wouldn't anticipate uh, those renegade uh, right-wingers to, to back down. And, you know, we know that uh, Steve Scalise, we know that Jim Jordan are announced candidates for speakers. Others may jump in. Right now, they're the favorites. But I don't think either of them have a, have a clear path to the number of votes needed. Right. I think, you know, and Elise Stefanik made a few little noises about it. But it's going to be, I think, a more crowded field than we're seeing right now. But you made an interesting point, and I think it's one that really is is very important here. This idea that the Democrats should have bailed out Kevin McCarthy when this is a purely intra-Republican party struggle. Um, What's your take on that? Because I've I've seen a good amount of that coverage today of people just sort of like tisking Hakeem Jeffries and the Democrats for not saving McCarthy. I I don't get it, but what's your take on that? 
Yeah, I admit I don't quite understand it either. And if the situation was reversed and it was Nancy Pelosi who needed a few votes from Republicans to save her job, do we think they'd come rushing to her aid? Yeah, good luck. <laughs> I, hard, I highly doubt it. Uh, so I, I'm with you. I mean, this is – Democrats did come to McCarthy's aid over the weekend with a continuing resolution because they felt like this was a deal they had to make. They wanted to keep the government open. Sure. But they had a long list of reasons why not to bail him out again. First of all, there was McCarthy's and some Democrats thought rather – ungrateful at interviews he gave over the weekend in which he blamed Democrats for the chaos in the House, uh, as opposed to being appreciative of the help they gave him. They also, of course, they don't forgive him about launching this impeachment inquiry into President Biden when there's, to this point anyway, no there there. They don't forgive him for submarine the January 6th House committee. They don't forgive him for turning over the January 6th tapes to Tucker Carlson. And they certainly don't forgive him for just a few weeks after January 6th, making the pilgrimage to Mar-a-Lago to pose for a photo with Donald Trump, which was in a moment where the Republican Party, maybe, just maybe, that was the moment where they could have severed ties with Trump, maybe. But with McCarthy, that was Trump's first step back to rehabilitation. And now, of course, we know he's the dominant figure still. So these Democrats did not feel like they needed to bail out McCarthy. And I was surprised, too, by that talking point today from Republicans. OK, fine, they're going to use it. But from some media members who I think should know better, I'm not sure why this would be the Democrats' problem. Yeah, it, it really is. It really is. There's nothing that – if they had bailed him out, McCarthy would have probably had a larger rebellion on his hands five seconds after he got enough votes from Hakeem Jeffries, who I think has handled this pretty well. I mean, I think I think Jeffries has done with a fairly closely divided uh, Congress, especially after decades of being accustomed to Pelosi's very capable kind of managing her caucus. I think he's done pretty well. I think Jeffries is actually you know, getting better marks than I thought he might. Yeah, I mean, he held all the Democrats together. How, that doesn't That's not an easy task necessarily. I mean, we sort of got used to it because Pelosi was so masterful. But, but for Jeffries, this is one of his first early tests. And I think it's fair to say he succeeded. And, and back to McCarthy for a minute. I, there is one area of real concern here beyond the government shutdown. Is that, of course, is the future funding for Ukraine. Uh, the, both Jordan and Scalise have suggested that they're not going to be in favor of uh, supplying any more. The White House, of course, is anxious to have more done. Lots of Senate Republicans are. And frankly, a lot of Republicans in the House are, but just not enough. And right now, and, and there, that was one of the arguments made about why Democrats should have bailed out McCarthy, is that maybe they could have exacted some sort of concession or some sort of deal where he would pledge to come up with Ukraine funding. But how can you trust his word? And that's, at the end of the day, why Democrats didn't act to help him, is that I can't tell you how many of them and their senior aides have talked to me and my colleagues in recent days saying, we simply didn't trust Kevin McCarthy. How could we trust him on his word about Ukraine either? I talked to a former Republican member last night, a recent, fairly recently departed Republican member last night, who said to me, the only thing I grew up with in Washington was you had to keep your word in Congress. And Kevin, he deserved this because he kept telling one story to the Democrats, one story to the press, one story to the, his caucus, one story to Matt and his friends. And it, it had all caught up with him at one time because that Kevin's desire for the job outweighed everything else. Yeah, I think that's a very fair analysis. I mean, McCarthy has been gunning for this position for years and years, for, for many cycles. He stayed with it. He, he earned it by the skin of his teeth, but he got it uh, in January. But he was so desperate. He wanted it too much, perhaps. That's what someone said to me today. Uh, he was so willing to tell anyone what they wanted to hear to get through that moment. In that regard, that was very, a very Trumpian uh, sort of quality. Um, and therefore, he inherently couldn't keep his word to everybody. And he burned a lot of bridges, some in his own party, but certainly with Democrats too. And you know, your word is your bond in Washington. And, and like you have, people have to be able to trust you at least to some degree. Um, and, and by the end, he was he had simply exhausted. So what do you think this does to the Republican cycle? I mean, I think Kevin was a very effective fundraiser 
And I think it's harder for corporate and, and lobbyist types to say, oh, man, I can't wait to write Jim Jordan a check. Um, how, do you, how do you think it affects the, the cycle going forward? I mean, not only from the fundraising, but from the political side of it. Yeah, even some Republicans who didn't necessarily love McCarthy gave him credit for his fundraising ability. He seemed to thrive off of that routine of hopping on a plane, flying across the country, shaking some hands, raising some money, hop on a plane, go to the next stop. Despite his ties to Trump, was I do think you're right, to the donor class was seen as a little, at least a little more palatable. That's harder for, for, for Jim Jordan in particular. Maybe Scalise is a little easier to, to handle. Um, but, but both of them have real flaws. And I do think in terms of the cycle ahead, we know that the Republicans already have such a thin majority. They may be staring at Donald Trump across atop the ticket, which, you know, was helpful in 16, but hasn't been helpful in other cycles. Uh, and we also know that the odds are that these new Republican leaders, whoever they may end up being, are going to ask all their members, including those in Biden districts, those sort of mainstream moderate Republicans in New York State and other places who actually gave them that for the majority, they're going to be asked to make some pretty difficult votes. The ones that are going to be very hard to defend to voters come next November. And that seems to be a ticket to be right out of the majority. You know, it strikes me that the curse of impeachment may also play in this. As you said, there's just no there there yet. There's nothing, there's nothing out of these early impeachment hearings. And McCarthy greenlit them. McCarthy said, go forth and do this. Um, I'm seeing some of these Republicans who are like Anna Polina Luna today who are saying things like, I'm not going to do this unless I'm not going to vote for any speaker who doesn't agree to shut down Jack Smith and to, you know, go forward with impeachment and to investigate Hunter and all these. Is that going to end up poisoning the well for the, for whoever the Republican leader becomes? I mean, that's another level. I mean, impeachment never really works out like people think it does. No, it tends to benefit the president uh, who's at the subject of the impeachment investigations. And and McCarthy not only greenlit them, but he did so without holding a vote, which he had promised he would do, which was another reason why he broke trust for so many others. Um, I, you know, to this point, I, you can't find a Republican who wasn't furious at what happened uh, in that first hearing. The true believers in impeachment who think Joe Biden should be exited from office, who thought it was a failure, and then other Republicans who thought the issue was entirely an embarrassment and just going to be a political weight around their necks. Uh, but that is that you just described the dynamic that whoever a speaker is going to be is going to have to face because you have enough of these hard right sort of radicals who are going to demand all those things, demand the impeachment, demand government shuts down, whatever it might be, because they're 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 in safe districts. They're trying to raise money. They're trying to think about their next Fox, the Fox News hit, whatever it might be, their aims are very different than it is actually governing. And frankly, for many of them, they don't really care if they're in the majority or not. So that's that's an issue going forward that's been very difficult for Republicans. Yeah, that, that idea of I'd rather have the minority and, and, and a caucus of people who are 100% unified versus the majority is a weird trope in the heads of some Republicans that I've been talking to. I'm like, how does that work out for you exactly? Because it doesn't. Um, the, you know, the majority is the majority one way or the other. So jumping over to the Republican primary for a second, it is grinding down slowly but surely. I mean, it, it, Trump still has many, many, many advantages in this primary. Um, are you seeing anybody breaking through? I mean, I see people headed the wrong direction, like DeSantis. Any anything you're seeing out there in the environment of any of these people breaking through? I, I think Nikki's having a mini a, a mini moment, a boomlet, but it hasn't stopped people from trying to get Glenn Youngkin back or into the race and some other things. What, what's your take on the primary field right now? Yeah, I mean, she's the name who's having a little bit of a moment, Nikki Haley. Uh, we have seen her; she did pretty well in both debates. Uh, we have seen her numbers go up slightly. 
but she's still, you know, 30 or 40 points behind Donald Trump. So you're right to identify DeSantis as someone who's still in a free fall. They did just put out some pretty good fundraising numbers today. Uh, and they say they're going to, you know, they're pushing every, all their chips into Iowa even further than, than before. You know, Chris Christie makes noise about New Hampshire, but he's still trailing. He's still in the single digits. Uh, and, and, you know, the Ramaswamy little boomlet seems to have come and gone. Uh, yeah, this is, this is Donald Trump's race. It's Donald Trump's race to lose. You know, perhaps there'll be a moment where some of these other candidates will, will all drop out and they'll coalesce around one Trump alternative. I don't see that on the horizon anytime soon anyway. And even then, I'm not sure it's enough. Yeah, there, there is some softness to some of the Trump numbers, right? You see polls that suggest that Republicans would be willing to consider other options, but he is far and away ahead. And he's using these trials, including the one going on right now in New York, the civil case, as his campaign. And he's he, in it, and it's to this point, anyway, Republicans are just flocking to his side. They are agreeing with his take that he's a victim of a, a deep state conspiracy. Um, and I certainly don't su- suppose he'll do any of the future debates. Why would he? He's he's so far ahead. And he's very clearly already running a general election campaign. Yeah, and I think you're right that, that there is a sense that every time an indictment hits and, and look, there's a natural cycle for all of us in the non-Trump political space, in the media, and in the everywhere, to every time a new legal story hits Trump, it's got a gravitational pull. It draws everybody to it. But every time that happens, you know, he gets a little more of the Republican base back on his side. So as this primary field sort of stays at least stuck or static, even though Trump has some weaknesses here and there, you know, I think you're right. I don't think he has to debate. Um, are you hearing the same stuff about people trying to begging and pleading to get Yunkin into the race as the sort of like the final, you know, the final anti-Trump effort? Right. He's the the one white knight on the horizon. Uh, yeah, those rumors are out there. I mean, we certainly have seen through the reporting that the Yunkin might be a favorite of Rupert Murdoch, who certainly has a lot of say when it comes to Republican politics these days. Uh, but I don't I haven't seen any indication that Yunkin's going to jump in. I think the, 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 there's a belief that Trump is probably too powerful. If you're Yunkin, why not wait a cycle um, as opposed to being the next guy squashed uh, by by Donald Trump? So yeah, this is this is this is Trump's to lose. And and though we should note, and and, and to your, you're exactly right that every time one of these indictments comes down. I mean, Trump just eats all the oxygen. He takes everything. It's all about Trump. And and frankly, that's in part because his Republican uh, rivals are refusing to go after him on the merits of any of these cases. The only, the only time you hear from them complaining about Trump is that he doesn't show up for the debate. Though this may be helpful, it clearly is helpful to Trump in the primaries. It may still be a very different story in the general election, though, that, that those independent swing voters who actually decide elections in the swing states next November, it, it's hard to imagine too many of them um, you know, thinking that these indictments are, are, are going to draw them to Trump. The strangest of the Republican primary, the differential in the Republican primary electorate psychology, like what's good for Trump, is further than ever, I think, from where the actual general electorate population is. The, the exhaustion of Trump and the corruption, the feeling of corruption about him. With every non-Republican, I think it feels like it's more intense now. No one's getting used to it anymore. They're just like, oh, God, another and another. Exactly. And it, maybe it's numbing. There's there's so many, it's hard to pick out what's more serious than the others. But they, they do matter in total. And, and, and I keep coming back to the idea of these, the, the sort of un, independents and undecideds. Like, a lot of them did break for Trump in, in 2016. They largely broke away from him in 2020. It's hard to imagine they've seen anything over the last three years to say, you know what? I'm going back to Trump. Yeah, now, I need some more of that Trump. <laughs> yeah, like everything, like, the, man, he was great on January 6th. I've loved everything. I've loved everything he said about Jack Smith. Uh, I just, I don't, I don't see that voter existing. Now, 
there are some weaknesses to his likely rival, President Biden, uh, in a reelection campaign, too. But but again, he, he would seem to be sort of repulsive to voters who tend to uh, actually determine these things. Right. And a lot of those voters are my sort of bread and butter. Uh, and you're right. There is a definite exhaustion with them. And it's hard to see a Trump Biden Trump voter in the in the, in the field. Now, could it be Trump Biden stay home? Maybe. But we see where we see who that benefits. Speaking of, of the president and you know, the, the Democratic Party, one of the reasons his numbers aren't where they need to be is there's been a fair amount of weakness among his own base historically of, of Democrats not they haven't fallen in love with the guy even now. I mean, I know there are some noises out there with Phillips and some other people. Um, where do you see the Biden campaign at this moment in terms of the race they're preparing for is obviously against Donald Trump. How do you see the, the landscape for the Biden campaign right now? Uh, so a couple of points on this. First of all, you mentioned the idea of they're not concerned about any primary challenge. Um, yeah, there is some degree of worry about a potential third party candidate, whether it's a no labels or a Cornell West, because there is a belief in Biden world that this next election is going to be very, very close. Uh, so even losing some votes in a third party candidate tends to hurt Democrats. Losing some votes in swing states could could really be a problem. Um, that said, they they still feel pretty confident. They understand this race is going to be close, but they believe that next year that these economic gains will be better felt by Americans. Americans will feel better about the economy. Now we'll see if they're right, but that's what they're betting on. Uh, and they're also betting on what we just said: this idea that these swing voters aren't going to come back to Trump, especially next year, where Trump. There's images of Trump sitting in a courtroom every day about election interference trial. They think that will really drive home to people who are exhausted by Trump and will say, "I don't want to go back to that." They are, you know, Democrats. You know, perhaps those outside of the White House are are pretty candid about the president's weaknesses too. Age is a big part of it. We know that. And, and age is which fueling, I think, for a lot of people, a lack of enthusiasm towards President Biden. Even Democrats who say, you know, he's done a good job. Look at his record. Um, you know, but there's some weaknesses among young voters. There's weaknesses against voters of color, particularly black voters and black men. Um, and there is a, a sense that there's just not a lot of enthusiasm for Biden. So his campaign is hoping that that enthusiasm against Trump or for a specific issue like abortion rights, that will be enough to carry the day. Yeah, I think that I think that's exactly where I'm sort of picking up the same signal is if this is a referendum on Trump, they feel very confident. If it's a referendum on Biden, they don't feel as confident. If it's a referendum on the economy, this sort of a, a split card right now, but but growing, uh, I think a growing sense of like, by the time we get there, it'll be more in hand for most people. So uh, we hear a lot of muttering right now out there of discontent with Vice President Harris among Democrats. The Democrats I've talked to have a bigger issue with her than the Republicans do in a weird way. What's what's her status right now? How are they going to put her to work in this campaign cycle? And and where do you think she stands in the in the food chain? Well, she's already a a, a prominent piece of it because so many Republicans, Nikki Haley most explicitly are saying a vote for Joe Biden in 2024 is actually a vote for Kamala Harris. I mean, not too subtle about the president's uh, age uh, there. I think the vice president has is already they're putting her to use. She's she's done a lot of fundraising, and she will keep doing that. She's done a college campus tour that has gone his at her aides believe gone very well. Um, I mean, it's no secret that she got off to a pretty rocky start uh, in her new role. Um, so the politics of the job uh, were a struggle, and it's no secret that some in the West Wing second guess some of her decisions. They do though think she has 
warmed to the job, and particularly on certain issues like abortion rights, where she is by far their best advocate for this. And it's a it's a topic the president himself is pretty uncomfortable discussing uh, by his own admission. Uh, so they think that she's good there. They they do worry that they 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 can read the polls that she's not that popular, uh, even among Democrats. Democrats worry uh, that were something to happen to President Biden and she was suddenly at the top of the ticket, that she'd be very beatable. And if, and if, and if tomorrow President Biden were to announce that he wouldn't run for re-election, and of course, we have no reason to think that's going to happen, he's going to run. But if for some reason he didn't, I don't think that the nomination would just be handed to the vice president. I think it would be it be an open field for other Democrats. Right. I, th- I think that's right. There are a lot of There are a lot of ambitious and decently well-positioned folks out there uh, in that in that space. So switching over to the Trump campaign, I've been struck with the contrast between the 16 and 20 campaigns and today with you know Chris Lasavita and Susie Wiles. It's the first time I've seen Trump have any adult supervision that seems to be consistently holding. And they're they're not stopping everything, but it's not the torrent of yeah, tweet whatever you want, boss. That we used to have. How do you rate the the, the Trump campaign as it's coming together for this cycle so far? Yeah, it's it's much more professional uh, than it has been other times. The only moments I can remember that Donald Trump was even remotely in control, like the last ten days of 2016, when Steve Steve Bannon really got in his ear and said if you want to win, stop this. And he basically stayed on message for 10 days. Uh, And then the very first months of the John Kelly as White House chief of staff, where Trump also kind of calmed down for a bit. Obviously, Trump rebelled against Kelly in a big way. uh, And that the administration went off the rails. But you're right, it is few, it is rare, this can happen. And look, if you look at Donald Trump's true social account, you'd say, they don't have any control over this guy, because he's just bashing prosecutors and going to end up, you know, getting another gag order. But in terms of a campaign operation, it's been pretty disciplined outside of Outside of the investigations, he hasn't gone on like wild attacks like he has about random figures. There's been no attacks on Rosie O'Donnell this time around, um, like we have seen in other cycles. Uh, and I think they've also done a pretty good job of warding off potential delegate fights. They've done a pretty good job of squeezing donors. They've done a pretty good job of just sort of establishing he's the guy to beat. Don't cross us. Now, whether this discipline, and again, I put that word in quotes, lasts, We'll see. There are already signs that Trump is perhaps feeling more and more of the pressure of his legal issues and, and you know, the torrent of true social posts has picked up of late and we've got a long way to go. But you're right to highlight that their team is certainly better organized this time around. It strikes me as and, and knowing La Civita and knowing Susie, they are an order of magnitude above the Corey Lewandowski's, Jason Miller, Steve Bannon's of the world um, in, in terms of a danger to the to, to the Biden team. Because they really know how to do this. They're not just like playing Trump's own politics all the time and who's going to be on the plane and who's going to sit in the room with him. Well, listen, Jonathan Lemire, I deeply appreciate you coming on the enemies list today. Tell people where they can find you on social media, because if they turn on their television on NBC, they will find you at some point. But tell them where they can find you on social media and where they can read your stuff. Yeah, they can definitely find me, particularly in the mornings on MSNBC, but uh, sometimes throughout the day. I am on Twitter slash X, at John Lemire, J-O-N-L-E-M-I-R-E. And you can also, of course, read my stuff at politico.com. And I should note, my book, The Big Lie, uh, was a best, New York Times bestseller out last summer. And a good one. Thank you. And a paperback version coming this spring. All right. Well, thanks again, Jonathan. I really appreciate you coming on. We look forward to having you back at some point in the future. Would love to do it. That was a lot of fun. Thank you. So on the enemies list today, unsurprisingly, is Matt Gates. 
Now, look, I've known Matt for a long time. I've known Matt since his dad was the state Senate president in Florida. And you're wondering how somehow Matt rose through the political world. It's the Nepo baby of all Florida politics. But here's the thing. Matt, listen, I know you're riding high right now. I know you think your shit doesn't stink. I know you think you're 12 feet tall and covered with steel. But you know what? You're a grubby political arsonist. You're a grubby little political terrorist. You're a guy who truly believes that you are doing something for your own good to elevate yourself. Maybe you are. Maybe you're going to get a gig on Fox after this. Maybe you'll get your own streaming channel. Who knows? But what you're doing is ensuring the destruction of the Republican Party. And look, at this point, I'm kind of okay with that. What you're doing is ensuring the country will be at greater risk for a financial collapse. And maybe you're okay with that. You're ensuring that aid to Ukraine will be disrupted. And I know you're okay with that. But here's the thing, Matt. All the showmanship, all the stunts, all the spectacle, all that stuff. At the end of the day, history will judge you one of two ways. Is either a criminal or a clown. And that's why you're on the enemies list. Thanks again for listening to the enemies list. If you have any comments, questions, or if there's someone you'd like to hear on the podcast, hit me up on Twitter at the Rick Wilson. Thanks again for the wonderful support you've shown the pod. We're growing fast. It really helps if you will share this with your friends, your family, and anyone else who, like us, is trying to save democracy. While you're at it, if you could rate and review the podcast, I would be very much appreciative. I know this is the sort of thing you've heard a billion times. Please rate, review, like, blah, blah, blah. But you need to do it. It really does help us a lot. We are slaves to the algorithm, my friends. And if you do this, it will help get the pod out further. Anyway, thanks again for listening. I'll see you next time. And remember, whatever you do, stay off the list.